Hello, my name's Adam Spring and this is a Remotely Interested podcast hosted at remotely-interested.com for some and remotely-interested.com for others. And my tag team partner for this episode, as always, is Ravi Abbott. Ravi, how are you doing? I'm good, yeah, and um, I'm really excited to be on this episode. You know, it's all about wrestling and kind of, I'm not your traditional wrestling fan or anything I've had it around me all of my life and kind of noticed stuff going on but I've noticed a hell of a lot of activity now coming out and uh, lots more mentions of it so our guest for this episode is Michael Cutie Marshall is his ring name Kulari and Michael is currently the head coach at One Full Power Factory and he's also associate producer for a company called All Elite Wrestling. When I'd previously seen wrestling I'd seen like Hulk Hogan during the Hulkamania kind of period which I'm sure the whole world saw that and um, that was the first kind of route of a wrestler to film star to celebrity and now you just look at it and like there's The Rock and is on every single film ever <laughs> and uh, you know jo- there's John Cena and it seems to be a lot more established I also remember that whole attitude and uh, was it raw period and Britain with their kind of attempt uh, with Kenjai Nagasaki and uh, stuff like that so it's always kind of been around but it's really interesting to hear about the modern scene and the kind of way that it's fan driven and it's uh, very passionate and these new leagues are coming out and these new kind of wrestling groups rather than just your wwe really the reason why this one came about because it's a podcast about wrestling it's not a wrestling podcast is the one thing that i've observed over the years is wrestling has always been or professional wrestling has been something that's engaged with new media very quickly so in the 50s and 60s mass adoption on tv the 80s was basically pay-per-view and cable and then in the 90s to now really the early form of the internet and then social media and streaming one of the things we talk about this episode is a group that call themselves the elite and essentially the stuff that they did on youtube ultimately led to the formation of All Elite Wrestling, which is now 100 million investment from the Khan family who own Fulham FC and the Jacksonville Jaguars. And they're now basically rivaling the the WWE. And to me, it's just, it's fascinating, you know, that idea of engagement and connection with the fans. And it it seems a lot less amateur. Like, I remember back in the 90s when skating was a big thing and kind of jackass came out. There was this uh, backyard wrestling scene and uh, there was all these kind of VHS releases. There was even backyard wrestling computer games. And now it seems to have kind of changed from backyard into uh, becoming complete leagues. Again, tying it back to YouTube and stuff like that, the entire indie scene, independent scene as they call it, which, you know, it's massive in the UK and it's massive in the US. It's really flourished because now that otherwise private in-room 150 people type thing can now be broadcast to the world. And listeners, if you have any suggestions for future subjects, future guests for the show that you'd like to talk about or even questions that you'd like to submit to us, um, please let us know on the social medias. And for now, we'll leave you with Michael Kilari. Yeah, my name is Michael Kilari, uh, also known as Michael Marshall, QT Marshall, QT Marshall. Uh, I've been in professional wrestling for 15 years now. Uh, and right now, I work as a producer for All Elite Wrestling, but uh, most importantly as well, 
I run the One Fall Power Factory training facility here in Norcross, Georgia. You know, we train the the next generation of athletes and hopefully uh, steer them in the right direction for a long-lasting career in professional wrestling. So we're going to talk more about All Elite later on, and we're also going to talk more about your wrestling school as well. But before we do, what would you say is the thing that made you want to become a professional wrestler? Growing up in New Jersey, I really wanted to play baseball um, when I started you know, as I was growing up, my, my father, you know, he turned on professional wrestling, but I was always into baseball. And then in 1994, baseball went on strike. Uh, I started watching wrestling again, and I just became infatuated with it. Um, I don't know what it was, whether it was the uh, the way the athletes were. I, I believe it was the larger-than-life personalities. Uh, that really stuck to me. I mean, I was a giant fan of Razor Ramon, and, he, I mean, he's 100% personality. And I don't know, ever since then, I was just mesmerized. And when I realized at a young age that this was something that was actually possible, you know, we had some family friends that were in the industry. I just knew from that day on, like, okay, this is this is what I want to do. One of the things that really struck me, you were very kind and invited me to one of your shows, is just the power of the connection you can have to an audience. I was wondering if you'd talk a little bit more about that, because I was really struck by that. It's like they are really part of the show. It's like you feed off of it, it seems that way. Yeah, I mean, in any business, right, I, I truly believe that, you know, what we do, we're salespeople. And in sales, there's trust involved. And trust, the only way to gain trust is by having an emotional connection. People can tell who's fake right off the bat. And I think a lot of the, the wrestlers that don't, as we say, get over with an audience, it's because they're they're going out there and they're pretending. Uh, the ones that are organic and the ones that make that emotional connection with that audience member. Uh, they're the ones that are going to get the support, whether it's a, a cheer or a boo. Wrestling is one of those entertainments where we want the fans' participation. And that's any sport, honestly. If you go to a Yankees versus Red Sox game, those fans are emotionally invested, whether you're a Yankee fan or a Red Sox fan. And that's why it's a very exciting game. Every pitch means something. I mean, for myself being a Yankee fan, you know, watching a Padres versus Dodgers game doesn't mean anything to me. And I could sit there and watch and every pitch could go by and it wouldn't matter to me one bit because I have the emotional investment in the New York Yankees. So you have to be the New York Yankees to to that audience member, and you have to understand what they like and what they don't like. Uh, and that comes, you know, with a lot of time and a lot of studying and, and knowing your audience. It's like any business, any form of entertainment. You know, you just have to know who's in the audience, who's watching, and how to relate to them and, and get them to, to jump on the roller coaster, as we say. You know, since the 1980s, the term sports entertainment has come into your industry. And I was wondering if you could tell me or describe what you think the difference is between professional wrestling and sports entertainment. Honestly, the way I've always looked at it, uh, I've always just imagined that sports entertainment was just a way to get around some legalities. I honestly don't think there's any difference between... You know what AEW does, what Impact does, what WWE does. Of course, maybe they're not hitting every audience member, but that's to each their own. Going back into the 80s, when you had Steamboat versus Flair or Hogan versus Andre, it was still the same thing. It was still pro wrestling, and it was entertaining. Yes, there are going to be some some matches that are going to be a little more sports-oriented, I guess you could say, uh, more action-based, whereas some are just going to be more entertainment-based. That's what's the great thing about professional wrestling is that it is a variety show and you can hit every market. And when I go out and 
you know, I watch any form of entertainment. I want to be fully entertained. I don't want to just go pay to be scared. And maybe, you know, if the movie's that good, but realistically, I want you to hit every form, you know, every emotion you possibly can when I'm watching that movie. And that's what makes a great movie. And I think that's what makes a great wrestling product when you can have a little bit of everything. And I mean, I hate to reference something that's probably been referenced a lot, but Barry Blaustein's film Beyond the Mat. He opens it up when he talks about his fascination with wrestling, about it being like theatre and a classic form of good versus evil. Do you think that professional wrestling, because again, having seen your show, it's something that really struck, struck me. And, you know, I'm, I'm openly admit I'm a fan of professional wrestling. I, I love it. Do you think it's a pure form of storytelling? Because me as a fan, I certainly think it is. I think it is. I think at the lowest, lowest form that it could be, the story is to win a wrestling match. And as long as you're telling that story... Now you add conflict into it. Now there's a reason to have this, and it's not just because who's going to win and who's going to lose. You bumped into me in the hallway. You stole my food. Whatever storyline somebody's going to create to to make this conflict, um, whether it's as hokey as as you stealing someone's ice cream bar or as emotional as something like Cody versus Dustin, two brothers. Uh, either way, it's it's still storytelling, of course. The deeper the story, the more emotionally connected you can make the audience. But that is what we do. We tell stories. And the only difference is that our stories are settled in that 20 by 20 ring. Um, they're not, you know, they're not settled on the TV screen in the, in the living room. And they could be. Um, but, you know, we don't want to do that. We want to settle them in the ring with, with this, you know, over-the-top athleticism and just crazy stuff that you would never get to see anywhere else. And that's why professional wrestling, I think, exists. One of the reasons why I wanted to do this interview is something that I've noticed as a long-term fan is that wrestlers and professional wrestling as an industry has always been very quick to adopt new media, whether it's TV in the 50s and 60s, whether it's pay-per-view in the 80s, or you know the internet and subsequent social media in the 90s and beyond. Do you think, I guess because I now know you a little bit, the question for me has evolved in my head. But do you think that the main thing driving this is the connection that you have to your audience? And that's the reason for this happening? Or is it just the professional wrestling, the audience is part of the story in a way? Two things. One, yeah, I think that, you know, us having that emotional connection with the audience, we're going to do everything in our power to connect with them, whether it's the newest form of social media. I mean, it used to be you know, when Hulk Hogan was hurt, people were sending cards. They don't do that to Major League Baseball players because they don't have that emotional connection with, you know, the, the baseball players. The The other thing is I, I genuinely believe that, like I said, I mean, we are just doing everything in our power to stay up ahead of the curve because we're not treated like we're not treated like celebrities and we're not treated like athletes. Uh, there's always been this this stigma about professional wrestlers that is a very unfair stigma, but we get it. Being a wrestling fan isn't easy for most adults. When you go into a bar and you're by yourself and you ask them to turn on whether it's Raw or SmackDown or whatever it is, and then someone else comes in, the first question they always ask is like, how do you watch that? Uh, what do you mean? How do I? I don't ask you what you watch and I don't care like why you watch it, right? Uh, but for some reason, we have to explain ourselves. So we have that connection and, and it, it, it never leaves us. And um, and us as professionals, we understand that, that there's a lot of stuff in wrestling that uh, I think Cody said it on one of the episodes that wrestling has, it stays with you no matter in the good times and bad. And I think Jim Ross said the same thing. Uh, there's been a lot of ups and downs in his life where wrestling was all he had. So we're very fortunate enough to have this. I mean, this is one of the greatest things I've ever been a part of in my life uh, is wrestling. 
And um, I've had a lot of jobs over the years. You know, this is obviously the best one. Not just me, but most wrestlers will tell you they will do just about anything for professional wrestling. And it's just to get that, you know, that, that feeling of what it's like to be out there or behind the scenes or just to be part of something. I mean, it's the same reason why I probably get hundreds and hundreds of emails from wrestling fans that just want to be a part of AEW with no actual job title that they want. They just want to be part of it. And we understand that. And that's why we can't give a job to everybody, but we can connect with them through whether it be through social media or meet and greets or or anything like that. And uh, so we're going to do our best to always make sure that they have the best experience possible. One thing that I've really been struck by, by being able to be at One Full Power Factory a bit and see your students and see how you're training them is you walk through the door and it just feels like there's a sense of community here. And it seems as though that you're instilling values into the students that genuinely want to be here that is not just about professional wrestling, but will set them up for life as well. And I was wondering if you might talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I've learned over the years is that wrestling, as much of it as is a sport, it is entertainment. And with entertainment, uh, it's very subjective. So you have to really be careful how you go about stuff. And a lot of people don't understand that there are these weird unwritten rules. And, and what's good about, you know, the, the newer generation is we're trying to get rid of a lot of them. But then obviously there are certain ones that are just real life things like hold the door for someone, shake their hand when you meet them, especially if you're going to get in the ring with them and trust them with your life. The last person I want to get mad at me is the guy picking me up over his head. And the same thing, I don't, I don't want to get mad at that guy. So you know, I try to instill that in them. I just try to let them know more than anything. Of course, we're going to train them the right way. We're going to teach them how to how to eat healthier and, and work out to get bigger, stronger, faster, all that good stuff. Uh, but at the end of the day, I tell them because wrestling is, I mean, it is a crapshoot at the end of the day. If nothing else, they'll leave here better people. And because I'm fortunate enough, because I believe I am one of the good guys in wrestling, you know, highly debatable, obviously. Depends on who you ask. But... I believe that because I am one of the good ones and I work hard, uh, that I'm fortunate and I'm fortunate enough to have a successful school because I don't have a, I mean, I do now, luckily, being fortunate enough to work with AEW, but before that, I'm not on TV every week. I don't have a Hall of Fame career to fall back on, so I just had to do the right thing and you know, become the best coach I could be and open up my doors and explain to people and be honest with them and let them understand what they're paying for. Um, and I don't have to sell them a dream, right? Because we all have the dream. The dream is, is yours. It's not mine. I just have to get you there and I have to at least guide you in the right direction and try to give you the best, the best possible scenario to get to, to land the job. And with that, it comes a lot of life skills. And there's a couple of people I have here that phenomenal athletes, phenomenal wrestlers, terrible life skills. But when they got here, I could have turned them away and said, you know, well, there's nothing you can learn here, but that's not true. They can learn a lot here, and you can see as they've as they've grown with us, um, they've become more mature, and they've gotten better opportunities because of it. Opportunities that they probably would have never gotten before coming here, and and a lot of it was because I made a lot of mistakes in my career, and I'm fortunate enough to be able to make those mistakes, and they never burnt me too bad. But I'm I understand the mistakes I made, and now I could pass those lessons on to the people underneath me so this way they don't go ahead and make those mistakes themselves and how did you make that transition or first think you know what I could maybe teach this as well as have it as a profession um in 2016 I had neck surgery so I had six screws put in my neck and I was up in New Jersey and I was coaching uh I was helping out at the monster factory up there and um you know I realized like this is something I could do as I was there I had a you know another job I was managing restaurants and stuff like that 
and I just wasn't happy. And I also knew that the Monster Factory wasn't mine. It was never going to be mine. I was never going to make a living at it. And, um, you know, I was fortunate enough to be in the position that my wife and I, we had just gotten married. We could move down here, you know, to Atlanta. You know, we've been friends since we're eight years old, so she kind of understood. She knew that in middle school I wanted to be a wrestler. In high school I wanted to be a wrestler. And as an adult I still wanted to – I still had this crazy idea that I was going to be a professional wrestler. So she understood, and she knew the passion that I had. And um, so we decided, all right, we're going to move down here, and we're going to start from scratch, open up a facility – And I've been very fortunate to make the right relationships. And, um, you know, obviously WCW legend Glacier was uh, one that helped me out. And and he's like our brand ambassador because he lives in Orlando. But he he comes by here. He helps coach when he's here. And like I said, he's the one that kind of networked this relationship to get us in this amazing, you know, 40,000 square foot professional facility. Obviously, when you just take a a look at the pictures, I mean, the pictures say it all. But um it's more than that, and I knew that at, at nothing else, at, at our core, right, our core value of the school was going to be work hard, right? And I knew that no matter what. As long as we're here working hard, something good will happen. It'll take a long time, right? It'll take a lot longer than hustling people left and right. But at the end of the day, work hard, succeed, and have fun. And maybe not in that order, but... Seems to be going all right. We just got our third ring yesterday, so... Congratulations. Ah, thank you very much. So tell me a little bit about the documentary that was done on you then. So in 2015, a buddy of mine had a younger brother who... He went to Full Sail University, and he decided that he wanted to be a wrestler and document the whole process. Well, he came to the Monster Factory. Uh, he came to a show, and I had worked with uh, Punishment Martinez from Ring of Honor, I guess now, Damian Priest from NXT. We took some crazy bumps... And he sat front row, and I think he realized real quick that this is not what he actually wanted to do. So he decided that it would be a better idea maybe to just follow me to make this documentary. Uh, In the process, while we were filming, I had done some extra work with the WWE, and I was offered a tryout with them. That's kind of what the documentary is about. It, it, It follows me as I prepare to go for this performance center tryout, you know, in Orlando. And um, it's a sad story. Uh, because obviously the ending didn't work out the way we wanted it to, but uh, we we always joke over at uh, you know at our comeback studios that we need to film a new ending because the story wasn't over. It just happened to be that documentary that we ended it where we did at that time. But it's a much happier ending now, and uh, you know so we'll see. We we might have to to put an alternate ending uh, on the DVD release, but um, you know it's it's really cool. It kind of brings you in the world of you know, what I was thinking at those times. And on top of that, I mean, we won some cool awards, got to go out to the Comic-Con in San Diego. We took home the best documentary, which was, you know, kind of cool to see uh, that all this kid's hard work, right? And that's at the end of the day, he just wants to be the best director and producer he could be. So when I see somebody with any type of passion for anything, you know, I'm willing to help out. And, uh, you know, I didn't gain... I didn't gain anything from this documentary except to be able to tell people about it. I know there's no money involved. I probably lost money on it, but it helped him out a great deal. And I'm sure hopefully one day when he's this giant director or producer, he's going he's gonna to turn around and call me for some role that he sees me in. But, uh, you know, we'll see. Talking about the happy ending, for me, really, I guess it's one, you have a very good wrestling school. And two, All Elite Wrestling. How did you get involved with All Elite? Long story short, you know, I started 
training Brandy Rhodes. Cody had asked about bringing Brandy by one night, and then I asked Brandy if this is something she really wanted to, you know, that she needed time to really work on stuff that I would make myself available. So she started coming by, which, you know, led me a little bit closer to Cody and stuff. And then at All In, I went there with my wife to support. One of my students was singing the national anthem there, which was a kind of a favor, you know, to us. But also um, she had won an award. We did a like a seminar camp named after Cody's dad. Uh, we called it the American Dream Scholarship. And she was one of the winners. And as a as an award uh, they knew that she was a world-traveled uh, opera singer. Um, they, you know, found out she could do the national anthem, so they they put her out there in front of ten thousand people uh, with my recommendation. So, had she not been good, uh, maybe the school wouldn't be around anymore. So we were there, and then there was a little hiccup backstage. You know, they needed some extra help, so luckily I was there to lend a hand. And you know, I I did it out of helping out a friend because uh, that's what I believed. You know, that Cody and I are friends more than anything. So, you know, when I guess he had this idea, talking to all those guys about all this stuff, I was left in the dark. I didn't really know much about it. You know, kind of like everyone else, you know, that they announced it January 1st. And obviously I had read the reports and everything like that, but it wasn't my business to ask. And I wasn't going to because, again, I looked at him as someone that was a friend. No one would even know that I trained Brandy, you know, or that Cody would come by the school because that's not what I was doing, right? I'm I just wasn't that person that wanted to take pictures of them and, and brag about it and stuff because I know that's not why they were there, and I'm sure they wouldn't have had a problem with it. But at the end of the day, that's not that's not how I do business, right? They're friends. Yeah, at the end of the day, they're friends, and you know she, she needed someone to train with. And for me, it was like more of a, a self-gratifying thing of like, hey, you know, I get to train Brandy. And if she does well at her TV show, you know, whether it be ROH at the time or whatever it is, like, hey, that's the spot that we did together. So like for me, that's gratifying. Same as one of my students, just on a bigger stage. And having the trust of, of someone in that kind of a role was just great to me. When they went to do the rally, I remember Cody messaged me and said, hey, do you mind coming to Jacksonville? And of course, no problem. I went down there. Uh, he introduced me to everybody. I, I kind of helped out filming some stuff. You know, one thing led to another. They asked me to come out to Vegas for the next rally. I did that. You know, and then I kind of made my pitch of what I wanted to do. You know, I was kind of being Cody's assistant more than anything, uh, kind of like a coordinator, just getting talent, do, just doing anything I possibly could to, again, like I said before, just be a part of what they were doing because I thought it was really cool. I believed in what they were doing. And on top of that, like I said, I, I, he's only 16, 20 days older than me, but I look up to him, right? Cause I mean, at the end of the day, he is still Cody Rhodes, right? So like when I was an extra at WWE in 2011, I worked with him. He's a main star and I'm an extra. So there is that, you know, as a, as a wrestling fan and wanting to be a professional wrestler and you see someone that's doing it, you look up to those people. It's like my students looking up to me. I might look at myself as someone that can still succeed a lot more, but to an 18-year-old, they look up to me as like, oh my God, this guy's, you know, I missed class that day to go do the rally in Jacksonville. It was the first day of class for some of these people. And I remember thinking like, oh man, you know, I have to apologize to them. And they didn't care at all. They were so excited to see that their coach was going to be you know, just on little bits and pieces of that whole entire rally. So you just, it's all about perspective. And um, I did that. Like I said, I, I had pit, made my pitch about being a producer. And Cody, you know, I guess he agreed that, you know, he'd give it a shot and see what happens. And, you know, everyone else agreed. They co-signed on it. And then they sent me my paperwork. And so now I'm an employee. 
So yeah, it's it's weird how stuff happens, but uh, I think at the end of the day, it's uh, you know work hard and have that good core value and. You know, good things will come. Of course, eat apples and videos as well. And eat apples and videos. Yeah, the apple, man, I just didn't I didn't want to sit there doing nothing. So I saw an apple. I started eating it. One of the camera guys said, man, you got to eat an apple every episode. I don't even like apples. <laughs> That's the word. You know, at least red apples. I'm a green apple kind of guy. So, But uh, if I'm going to eat carbs, you know, my wife's a nutritionist and I'm really trying to dial in and get in better shape. But if I'm going to eat carbs, I want rice, pasta, stuff like that. I don't want to waste it on fruit. But uh, hey, an apple a day, it's, it's kept the doctor away. For those of you listening who may not necessarily be familiar with All Elite Wrestling or even WWF or WWE, it's a very interesting story in the sense that the thing I found really interesting watching it as a fan is you had these group of guys you know they were independent wrestlers but also they were doing stuff in japan for at the time which was probably the second biggest company but a big difference to say 20 years ago when you had you would have new japan stars on say something like wcw which was wwe's biggest rival and then people like scott norton winning the bout is you had this wonderful thing called the internet And you had this thing called YouTube and you had this thing called Twitter. And they were able to take something that would otherwise have a boundary and bring it to, you know, the U.S. market in particular. I'll be biased because I live here now. And just do something and reach an audience in a way that you really haven't seen in 20 years. But they did it in a very organic way. And then from there, Tony Khan, who's part of the Khan family... The family owns an NFL team. They also own Fulham FC back in the UK. Invested money into this company called AEW. Now, Mike, I find it a very interesting story in the sense that it's all very organic. And, you know, I don't want you to lift the lid too much because it's not it's not what I want to talk to you about. But, you know, do you think the fact that AEW has come about organically and it's gotten so much recognition very quickly that it says something about how bright its future is? You know, I think the biggest thing about... AEW and and just independent wrestling, which now, I mean, obviously a lot of those guys are not considered independent wrestlers anymore, is that they are organic, right? So when they're creating their content on YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and whatever it is, it's all organic. No one's putting on an act. It's it's not like you're going to see them film stuff and then as soon as they say, okay, cut, thank God we're done with that. No, they're genuinely having fun because they're all dreamers. Like, myself that are making a living in professional wrestling and even if it's not you know they're not making millions they're they're making money in professional wrestling where as you know 10 years ago you really couldn't make a lot of money on the independence and now because due to I don't know whether it's uh, a lack of creativity on the on the WWE side or whatever whatever the reason is for these fans that just want this alternative uh, we're giving them an alternative one and two we're connecting with them because of the the organic content that we're putting out, right? And and I think people see that. And then they also, people love the struggle. It's the same reason why when your favorite band signs with Sony, you're, oh, they sold out. Well, they didn't sell out. They just accomplished their dreams, right? But unfortunately, it seems like they've sold out. We enjoy wanting to help people that are passionate about what they're doing. And I think that's one of the biggest things with wrestling is that we see all these guys and girls, you know, these men and women out there putting their bodies on the line for just our, and I say our because I'm still a fan at the end of the day, but just for our entertainment. So if someone's willing to go out there 
and put their body on the line to the point where, like myself, having six screws in my neck and still going out there on the independence and wrestling and, and just having fun, why not support that person, especially if you already like wrestling? I understand if you're not a wrestling fan, but at the end of the day, like if someone's giving their, their money and they're, they're using their hard-earned money to support you, I don't want to say you owe it to them, but you owe it to yourself to give them the best performance, but also give them you. And if, and if you are a, a gimmick or a character, that's okay. Just, just be really good at it and make me believe for one minute that you're not. I mean, that you, you, know, that you are that character, uh, that you're not somebody else as soon as you hit the curtain. And I think having those YouTube series and, and like being the elite, for instance, I mean, they're showing you their lives. They don't have to show you uh, that they're going to the airport, but they're showing you everything that they're willing to do. Uh, and they're not complaining about it. They're having fun. I mean, like I said, they're traveling the world, uh, you know, doing what they've always dreamt of doing. And now they're just showing you, they're letting you in. And you see, uh, if you, you know, have the WWE network or, you know, you you log on under someone else's name or however you watch it, you see that the WWE is starting to do the same thing. They're starting to create more content to really show you uh, the personal side of everybody, which obviously has its pros and cons, right? Like it's hard to think that you and I are feuding if the show right after Monday Night Raw is how we drive together and we hang out and go eat at the nearest racetrack gas station or something like that. But for those diehard wrestling fans, because the casual fan's not going to watch that show because they just want to watch Monday Night Raw, and that's it, and then they have their mortgage to worry about and everything else. But those diehards are going to watch it. And now those diehards are really going to you know, boo you when you're out there because they understand. They get it, right? They understand that it is entertainment. But at the end of the day, they see that you're, you're living your best life, and you're, you're out there having fun, and you're doing this for them. So they're more willing to, to cheer and boo when they're supposed to. They're not going to you know, yell nasty things at you and... You know, the reason a lot of these people are playing with beach balls and stuff like that on some of these big shows is because they're bored. They're bored. They don't want to they don't want to be told what to like. They just want to like the organic stuff. You know, and I think All Elite Wrestling and All In and some of these independent shows are capitalizing on that. They understand who their audience is and they're not taking their audience for granted. And they go out there and they put on the, the like I said, the best show. And those fans, because of that, you know, I watch a couple independent shows with my students, and they show me, like, who's the this guy or that guy. And some of the wrestling isn't the greatest, right? Like, as a coach, right? I was, hey, man, I wouldn't do it that way. I would do it this way. This is the safe way. Or, you know, like, this strike didn't look the best or whatever. It doesn't matter. Those fans aren't going to complain. Whereas, like, maybe at, on a bigger stage, uh, like a, a WWE stage, when they're already mad about the creative and they're already bored out of their minds because of your segment that's lasting too long and then you go out there and you throw a kick that just misses the guy by 10 feet yeah now they're going to start complaining they're going to start saying stuff they're going to start chanting up obscene things that you don't want people to chant at your shows they didn't chant anything at double or nothing they didn't chant anything at all in you know what i mean and i think that's because it's it's we're loyal to them and so they're going to be loyal to us there's that connection there that you know, it's kind of like you're, 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 if you're the favorite child, you can get away with a lot more stuff than if you're not the favorite child, right? You know, I think right now, AEW, independent wrestling, stuff like that, we just have our finger on the pulse of what they, what they love and what they want to see. And sometimes we're wrong, but for the most part, I think we, we kind of have an, a general idea. And do you think, you know, things like pro wrestling tees have kind of empowered independent wrestlers or wrestlers that aren't in a big machine in a way? 
because it's given them an outlet to actually make additional money where they can actually eat. Do you know what I mean? Do you think stuff like that has changed the game a little bit? Or It, it definitely has changed it. I mean, uh, you know, I spoke with Ryan from Pro Wrestling Tees, and, you know, when he found out that I was Glacier's business partner right away, I mean, he was just offering money to Glacier. I'm thinking like, oh, hey, I need to – hold on, hold on, wait a minute, you know. And because there is a, there is a want for stuff like that that – you know, maybe Glacier just didn't know at the time, like because he only does certain shows or whatever it is, and he doesn't realize that there's a market for his T-shirt. And Pro Wrestling Tees is really good about that as well, right? They understand what sells, what doesn't sell. They're good about marketing. Like, that's their lane, right? They do the T-shirts for wrestling. So that's why, you know, we're with Pro Wrestling Tees. We don't have a AEW T-shirt company. We're just with Pro... That's their lane. He's really good at it. Why are we going to, you know, let us handle the wrestling? And... They've been really good towards independent wrestlers, some who are under contract with us. So we're going to stay loyal, right? Because I, like I said, at the end of the day, I think in this business that is a very subjective business, it's about being loyal. It's about creating those relationships and, and keeping those relationships. And Pro Wrestling Tees has done a hell of a job of making a lot of people a lot of money, which is awesome because you don't have to rely on having uh, a boss, right? You are your own boss. And that's a positive and a negative. Some athletes, they need this major company, this machine to push them and get them out there to the public and stuff like that. And that's great as well, right? But the problem is if one day your boss decides that he doesn't want you there anymore, uh, now what do you do? So I think having those outlets and using social media and YouTube and Twitter and all that stuff, you are your brand. And now because of how powerful everything is, I mean, like what we talked about with, with All In, for instance. I mean, that's their brand, right? There was no commercials. I didn't watch Monday Night Raw and catch an All In commercial. There was no giant parties held every week up until then. Uh, it was literally tweets. Tweets, little being the elite videos. And I, should, I don't want to say little. I mean, they had major views. But that's it. I mean, so you think about that. Like you said, the biggest show since 1993 from social media. I mean, we, we, we put out social media posts for our school. <laughs> we get 70 people. So, you know, I know our reach isn't there. But at the end of the day, uh, social media can be pretty powerful if done the right way, if used the right way. And at the end of the day, like I said, your, your consumer has to trust you. Those people bought tickets in 29 minutes. There were no matches announced. I mean, that's absurd. It is literally absurd to, to sell that amount of tickets in and not have one match advertised. I mean, yeah, you had your talent there, but you didn't know what you were going to see. You could have went there and it could have been, you know, Cody versus generic wrestler A, Kenny versus generic wrestler A. But of course it wasn't going to be that. And the fans knew that because they trust that that's what they see everywhere else. And they know with with All In, they were going to get to see the greatest wrestling show ever. And um, that's what sold, right? It was, I remember, you know, it was a movement. And that's the difference. They weren't selling wrestling. They weren't selling the in-ring action, which, of course, everyone knew there was going to be amazing in-ring action. But they were selling the idea. Like, we can do this. and But we need your help, right? We need you to support us and help us do this. And I remember watching it unfold thinking, like, this is amazing. This is incredible. You know, and I'm, and I'm glad it happened because... Yeah, it seems like one of those fans was was Mr. Khan, who's my boss. And, uh, you know, I obviously don't know the details of how all that stuff went, but I listened to his podcast with Chris Jericho. So I did hear a little bit about it, and I was infatuated to understand all of these things. He's a he's a businessman. He's a numbers guy. And if the numbers made sense, which apparently they did because I have a job. So, you know, I'm super excited about it because, like I said, I mean, all in they were able to do. But, yeah, they would eventually probably needed somebody. And I'm sure somebody, if it wasn't Tony, you know, it, it would have been somebody else because – the business was there, and they proved it on that night in Chicago. So, 
yeah, it's just a crazy year in professional wrestling. Um, I remember thinking like at the end of my documentary when the job wasn't there, okay, well, I'll just create the greatest school in the world and that'll be my job in professional wrestling. And that's going to be cool because it's what I like. And if I need to wrestle on the side, I can wrestle at my shows and I'll have fun. But I knew like, okay, I have to set up my expectations to live this life a certain way and only have this amount of money because at the end of the day, a wrestling school isn't done for the money, right? There's the, the pure numbers aren't there to become a multimillionaire. It is what it is. It's a passion thing. But now I'm, I'm able to have like both jobs, right? So I have my school and, you know, I have assistant coaches as well now because obviously I can't handle everything. And at the same time, AEW has to come first because that's my primary source of, of income and it's my job. And I mean, like I said, I'm going to get to travel hopefully the world, you know, with AEW in wrestling. Uh, it's the greatest feeling ever. So, yeah, it's been a crazy couple of years, but it all started with that that one tweet about them not being able to sell out 10,000 seats. So, I'm I'm Dave glad Meltzer. that I'm glad that tweet went out. Dave so. Meltzer did somebody a favor. Absolutely. Yeah. I think as well the really interesting thing is it's a wrestling company, but it's also a startup, right? So you are really at the beginning of a story and a journey as it is starting. And that to me is kind of, that's a crazy ride, my friend. That's a, that's a crazy ride. Yeah, it's scary. Um, but we all love wrestling, right? And we all understand wrestling. So, you know, whether it's uh, just making sure that we have the ring or all the way to the to the production meetings. And I mean, it, we're, we're in it together and it's, it's awesome. Uh, I'm learning so much. I thought I knew a lot. I'm learning a lot more. And, you know, I would say that it, it it is scary, but at the end of the day, it's not because it's just a bigger building, right? It's a bigger building, um, you know, more bells and whistles. But at the end of the day, it's it's our passion, right? So whether we're in front of 100 people or 100,000, uh, we're still going to do what we do, which is the core of what we do is is wrestle, put on this show in the in the ring um and like i said having that connection with the audience just makes it that much better looking at something like double or nothing because i actually i was away at the time and i couldn't watch it but i did actually when i came back i seen the video that was put up about you know the post-show stuff where you had kenny and the other guys on the ramp and they were talking and it was refreshing for a number of number of reasons there was an angle going on to the ramp where i was like whoa i haven't seen the production value on a show like this that hasn't been wwe in a very long time Right. And it was like, I've been in the MGM Grand and it's like, this is really cool. And the other thing was when they're up on stage, his nose was busted open. He still had time for the fans. He was being honest with the fans. He wasn't brushing around it. He said something like, I need to get medical attention, but first I'll do this. You wouldn't have necessarily seen that on other shows. And, you know, those other shows that are trying to feed in what has been called an age of authenticity. I would say the only thing that I've seen that they've produced that's touched close to that is something like Zack Ryder and his friend doing a toy show because they are massive toy fans and you cannot fake that. Right, right. You know, so I think that's that's a really interesting comparison that I've seen between or difference between the two as well as somebody that's an observer and maybe a geek. I don't know. So here's I remember growing up and, you know, all the the sports card and collectible shows that would happen at my local mall. They would always bring in a WWE superstar and a WWF at the time. And I would always go meet them because it was $20, $25, whatever it was. And But I used to draw 
I don't have time to do it anymore, but I used to draw. And I would always draw these giant portraits. Um, some of them were good, some of them weren't. But I noticed that nine out of ten times I would go with a buddy of mine and I would get a much better interaction with the, the wrestler because I did something personal. Right, So I didn't just buy the 8x10 that was there. Now as a performer, I don't get people that come up to me drawing portraits or anything like that. I mean, I kind of wish I would. But I'm not over enough yet. But I, you know, even if it's as simple as just coming up and, and giving me a compliment or something like that. And I just remember I'm a fan for life now with that, with that wrestler. Whereas my friend who bought the 8x10, yeah, it was cool to meet him and then they forget about it. Like I still remember the day that I met The Rock and, and he asked me, hey, did you draw this? You know, And as I went, it doesn't matter if you drew this. And I'm just like, oh my God, is this, I'm 12. Like, is this life right now? Like, really? Is this what's going on? And then, you know, like he signed his picture to my friend and he just wrote Rock. And then to me, it was, you know, to Mike, know your role. And I'm just thinking like, wow, that this stuck with me for so long, right? Up until now. Um, and I'll probably never forget it. So Kenny going out there with a broken nose uh, with the rest of the elite and just saying thank you and, and letting the fans know that, listen, because they could very easily say, hey, we're, we made it, right? Like we got this these contracts and we're EVPs, and but that's not what they are, right? Um, they just love being able to go out there and perform and perform for those fans. And they want to let them know that it is appreciated because – they could all turn their backs on us and you know and it's not to give them all the power either because i'm i'm definitely a firm believer in uh it's a give and take relationship with wrestling fans but you know i think that is very important to to spend that extra time at the meet and greets where it's not just like herding cattle you know they someone has something to say to you like hey you changed their life or hey whatever it is hey i like your shoe it doesn't matter what they have to say they're they're a customer but at the end of the day, like they're a fan and they're they're a supporter, right? Like I like to always say supporters when I post stuff about our facility. I always say like thank you to the supporters that came out tonight because they're supporting. That's what they're doing. Yes, I mean we could call them fans, Mar- whatever you want to say, but they're supporting. And um, you know I think it is very genuine that they do that. It's highly intelligent, but it is very genuine. I've noticed that that they don't come in the back and no one does and and the whole the whole roster with AEW because I know that's one of the things that we really look for those kind of people that aren't gonna give us a bad reputation you know especially in 2019 we just just want to be around good people that have the same the same uh, passion that we do and you know on the on the other side of the barricade there's gonna be those same people that just want to have a great time get out of reality for a little while and we don't take them for granted and they don't take us for granted it's a it's a perfect balance that we have and it it showed at the MGM grant how do you whether you're a teacher and you've got someone coming into your school or whether you're putting on a show how do you blend all these different styles or i guess as a teacher say for instance if you're in the US and you've got someone coming in and asking you about i want to know the british style how do you begin to teach that you know, or, you know, translate one language to another. So at the end of the day, like I said, the, the core of, of what we do is just settling conflict in between the ropes. When it comes to different styles of wrestling and coaching those styles, for me, it's pretty simple. Our athletic coach here, he's like the godfather of sports performance. Uh, his name's Chip Smith. And what he did, I mean, he's put over 2,000 athletes in the NFL, but he's also trained the the ping pong players in China and also NASCAR athletes, well, pit crew. And I said, man, how do you know how to do that? And he said, well, all I have to do is watch the movement. And then I create exercises that replicate the movement. So what I do 
is if there's something that any student wants to learn, I just pull it up, you know, because they've seen it somewhere, right? It's not like they're making it up. And if they do make it up, I tell them, hey, let's make sure this is safe before we try it. But for the most part, it's nothing that's made up. It's something that they've seen someone else do. The key to wrestling is footwork. I truly believe that. So I just watch the footwork and then we we figure it out. It seems like it's the right way to do it. If it's the British style, I watch the footwork, but of course I watch what they do with their hands and and how they're chaining back and forth and stuff like that. You just got to go slow. And it's like anything you're trying to learn. Now, when it comes to working with somebody like, you know, like we say about wrestling is just the universal language, right? I remember training at Bubba and Devon school in Florida in 2007 and 2008 and Tanahashi came in and he was just there. He was working with Impact at the time, I believe. He came by a training night and I remember I was one of the only guys that was allowed to get in the ring with him because of my experience level. We couldn't speak to each other, so we just had to wrestle, right? But and we did like a, you know, like a little 5-minute exhibition match. Uh just rolling around and stuff. But I understand that I'm the bad guy, you're the good guy. It's pretty simple. Right at the end of the day, good guy does good, bad guy takes over, <laughs> good guy makes comeback. No matter what city, state, you know, uh, country, that's usually how it goes, right? Because that's storytelling 101. Every movie is the same way. You get the people invested in the characters, and then there's got to be a problem, and then there's got to be a, a way out of the problem at the end, and that's storytelling 101. So at its simplest form, now, were we going to have the greatest match of all time? Were we going to have a five-star, you know, five-star classic in the Tokyo Dome? No, by no means. Um, because I don't speak his language. And so there are going to be certain things that are a little more difficult. But at the end of the day, like I said, you go off a feel. And I, I truly believe that wrestling is a universal language. I mean, I watch Pentagon, and he puts a headlock on from the right side, which is the, the way they do it in Mexico. But you don't see you know, Matt Jackson like, hey, man, that's not what you're supposed to No, you just go with it because a headlock is a headlock. If I put you in a headlock, it doesn't matter what side you're on. You know, you're going to end up trying to push me off no matter what. So if you're a stickler for detail, you might look at that and be like, oh, that, that's a little awkward. But at the end of the day, that's not what we do, right? What we do is we tell stories through these e- emotions. So for me, I always say to our athletes, the only people that are going to know that you're doing something really wrong is you. The fan's not going to know because if you get that fan hooked with your character and your storytelling, it's game over. You can do anything you want to do because that is your customer. It's like I said earlier, it's sales 101. If you have somebody that trusts you, you can sell them anything, right? And uh, as long as you never burn them, just don't burn them. Take care of them because I was a salesman at one point in my life and I sold tools to the same customers every week. And when I went for training, you know, they told us, you know, why, why burn the guy on the first one? Like just to make the big sale when you could just sell them stuff every week. And now you have a customer for life. And I remember thinking that, like, oh, that's so true. Like, I'd much rather do that. So that's, you know, I, I feel that with professional wrestling. Don't go in there and just take them for granted and, and try to get the big sale on the front end, right? But now you have a fan for life. They're going to follow you. They're going to support you. They're going to retweet you. They're going to post your videos and, you know, and tell their friends about you and stuff like that. And, you know, and that's what a lot of these guys now on the independents are doing. And like I said, I mean, that's, you know, the universal language of wrestling is emotion. If I could say it that way, that's probably the best answer I could possibly give you. And an Apple t-shirt at Pro Wrestling Tees. And an Apple t-shirt at Pro Wrestling Tees. The Remotely Interested podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, YouTube, and Facebook, not to mention many more as new platforms get created. Like us at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash remotely dot interested. 
Follow us on Twitter at that interested. And also feel free to reach out to us either on Twitter or via email contact at remotely interested.com. Right, Ravi. So, you know, as a non-initiated into the world of pro wrestling, what did you think? I thought it was fantastic. Like that, you know, when you see a sport, you don't really look into the background of it. You don't look into what all the extra people are doing, the trainers, the kind of guys that are teaching you to fall correctly. And the the people even building the ring and putting up all of that and it really needs a foundation of support and a whole community yeah it was it was interesting for this one because you know i really wanted to do it justice and i actually said to you know my wife rebecca at one stage i hope mike doesn't mind me communicating with his with him as much as i did because i really wanted to get it right and she looked at me and she said look you you know you really just want to respect him but also respect his profession as well the sense of community that i got when i went over to his wrestling school to kind of pull out from what you were just saying was it was a little overwhelming like he's doing some really good stuff with people in terms of helping them with their life and stuff as we talk about in the interview but the other side of it is as well, there was there was other stuff going on there that I wasn't expecting. When I went to the indie show that he kindly invited me to, I was kind of expecting the relationship that you would see with the audience, but it was it was kind of intense. There was stuff going on there that I was like, what, you know, what can I put my finger on here? There's something that I'm not quite picking up. And then I went away and I started reading a few things. Roland Barthes, who's a famous sociologist stroke philosopher, he actually wrote an article about wrestling in 1957. And he actually talks about the relationship and the idea of spectacle and stuff like that. And then, ironically enough, there's a book called Fighting for Recognition by a guy called Tyson Smith. And Tyson Smith is actually the real name of Kenny Omega, which is one of Mike's bosses in All Elite Wrestling. And in that book, he talks about something called emotional labor, where your relationship between the wrestlers backstage is as important as the relationship that the wrestlers have with the crowd. So I think one of the things that came across in this episode that I really wasn't expecting, why I I kind of called it lessons learned from professional wrestling, because it was this idea of connecting with people, right? And how important that connection is. And, you know, I don't know whether you found that in this episode, but that was the thing that really got to me, just that basic idea of good manners with people, connecting with people, but also understanding things from their point of view, not just from your own. It seemed to me, and I totally know nothing about wrestling but it seemed that they were incredibly confident and they kind of knew exactly what they were doing but the response from the fans was also trusting in that confidence so you know the fact that he said he had this event that was completely sold out and that was before they'd announced any of the wrestlers um that were coming out that's a lot like we have this huge music festival in the uk called glastonbury where they never announce the bands that are going to come on but everybody knows that you're going to have a good time because it's going to be a quality picked kind of group. And that same kind of trust and quality seemed to come from the wrestling fans onto these guys. And then that means that they can do extra stuff like produce some merchandise that's then going to be trusted that it's not going to be a bad quality product. It, you know, people will really want that merch and stuff. And it, and it creates this whole 
industry and it and it is that that is the professionalism you know that wasn't there before all in was the pay-per-view we're talking about because they had as an independent show they had over eleven thousand people at that show in chicago and that's without a major sort of corporation backing them that hadn't happened since 1993 it's kind of insane when you think about it but the other thing about that show as well it was weird because when i was going through the literature there were a lot of coincidences with this one that I wasn't expecting. Like I said, like with the Tyson Smith thing, with the name on the book, and it's a Duke University Press book, so it's a full-on academic study. And then the other side of it is, even in that Roland Barthes essay, the first line, he actually talks about all-in wrestling. So it's kind of weird when you get not just that connection to the fans, but also there's clearly a bigger connection going on here in terms of the old theatrics behind it and stuff like that as well, you know? It's a really interesting world to observe. As you mentioned with the theatrics and stuff, I I personally studied theatre and... um thing that wrestlers do a lot is break the fourth wall so they directly talk to the audience they try and get a, a reaction from the audience i think there's pantomime which is a very uk thing where they also talk to the audience they'll have in jokes with the audience and stuff like that that seems really unique coming back to the bath article he actually talks about that because you know what obviously you know I'm a, I'm a history buff but i started looking up a little bit more and the actual theatrics behind wrestling started in the 1830s in france In fact, I put it in the show notes. So, you know, for this one, I would recommend people going to the show notes because there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. And they talk about how theatrics was introduced into it. And then in the 1900s, George Hackenschmidt, who was a guy in the US who's considered basically the first professional wrestling champion, this guy was that much of a hard man. He kind of started to do the theatric side because he kept beating all of his opponents so I think one of the things that's really interesting about professional wrestling that maybe a lot of people who aren't fans don't realize is you can't fake gravity right I mean like Mike's got six pins in his neck you know and that's from wear and tear of something that's supposedly predetermined it's one of those things where you're constantly asking yourself why would somebody put themselves through that do you know what I mean? Does that well, make sense or not? Well, we just watched a film, uh, Wrestling With My Family, which is really kind of actually uh, looking at the UK wrestling scene as well and those guys entering uh, WWE. And my God, yeah, that's <laughs> that's look, some of those slams look incredibly painful. Well, it, it was funny, actually, because the first thing he said to me when I walked through the door when I was doing the interview was, do you want me to body slam you? <laughs> and, I, and I looked at him and I said, look, I have a tremendous amount of respect for what you do and I know that gravity can't be faked. And he kind of smiled at me. And the funny thing was later on, um, one of the other times I was actually over at his place as we were basically back and forth talking about this this interview i actually said to his wife it's like he offered to body slam me she's like yeah don't let him body slam you i'm like nah well maybe i don't know i think i am i'm gonna have to do it in the future ravi and we'll probably get a video i, I can't resist yeah it. That, that's what we need a gift that we could just loop but um i think another thing that was really interesting was kind of the level of sports fun so what he was saying was he was saying that there was some fans that would sit there and they would watch the match and they'd watch the main match that was it but then there's a whole different group of fans that would watch the wrestlers interacting their life going around chatting with each other and stuff and that's quite like football you know if there's a big match or there's a big game on you'll get a certain group of fans that will just come for the big game and then you've got the guys that are sitting there throughout the whole season watching every single match with their season ticket so you know it it really reminds me of 
lots of different sports and having those different levels and that kind of understanding of the fans uh, they seem to really have I think Mike sums it up when he says the term supporter right because really that's what people are it's like they're showing their support they're invested yeah, yeah. you know in that connection to the fans whether it's through YouTube whether it's an indie show whether it's through Twitter there's clearly something going on there whether it's a, an escape from their everyday life or you know with someone like me in, in one respect it's also a fascination just the way in which these guys go out and do what they do and they're world travelers as well they're independent contractors so coming back to what you were saying about like t-shirts and merchandise and stuff they are their own branding agents in a way that's a hard life to actually want to do that on a day-to-day basis it's a testament to really how much they love what they do i also think it's a very american thing as well so like I've been around the world and, you know, there's there's wrestling, traditional wrestling in many, many countries. You know, in India, we have it uh, when I went to Gambia and you've got like the grappling kind of stuff in Britain. But I think the performance and the theatrics and the kind of um, uh, drama that goes with it is a very American thing. Yeah. And again, like I said, in the Bath's article that you know the 1957 one that a lot of academics that study this actually talk about he actually talks about the difference between french and american professional wrestling how the french version actually focuses on the villain in a different way to the u.s but it's this fundamental good versus evil which is the american tradition that's kind of i think won out in the popular media and in what most people now these days know as professional wrestling yeah it's, it's like we used to play cowboys and indians or goodies and buddies you know what i mean when we were kids so. well i mean another thing that you brought up as well a while ago that i thought was interesting about your own grandmother was when you know you were saying that she liked the wrestling and she liked the boxing and the interesting thing researching for this episode is that a lot of wrestling in the uk again similar to the early days that i was discussing earlier it was based off of really being able to make people submit or break their arms you know the Wigan tradition out of places like the snake pit for example that was originally shoot wrestling that came out of mining people like Billy Riley could stretch people and like make them pass out and stuff boxing kind of is a very traditional British working class pursuit so what they do is even now I'd go down the road 10 minutes and there's a working class area with a big boxing club in there and that seemed to also provide the kind of discipline that was being provided in these gyms and in the ring you know if you're in the ring you've got to be disciplined you've got to know your partner and stuff like that um we used to have this local fair called the uh, goose fair and this was even until 2005 it's like the biggest traveling fair in europe and we used to have lots of gang problems and fights but we had a traditional boxing booth so there'd be an old man outside with a microphone and he'd go, who can fight this guy? Roll up, roll up. And they'd get the two, like, you know, uh, guys who think they're the toughest in the area. And then they'd get them to come inside and they'd get all their gang members and stuff to come and pay for the audience fee. And because these guys were in the ring, they were disciplined. There was a referee there. There were rules. It created a sense of discipline and it created, if you have a problem then take it out in the ring and as soon as they shut that down a few years later the, the there was so much trouble at the fair you know but when it had the boxing booth it, it really kind of set that community discipline 
and a fair game kind of vibe. And that's something that really came across when I was over at, at Mike's Wrestling School as well. It was very much the case of, as he says in his interview, it was about life lessons and other stuff as well. It wasn't just about wrestling. He knows that there are people there that aren't potentially going to go on to be professional wrestlers full time. But if at least he can change their life in some way through professional wrestling, that seemed really important to him as well. Just like theatre, it's like, you know, it, 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 it's not just the actors that kind of rule the show you know there's also the lighting guys the sound guys the dancers the choreographers the the whole backstage area and they may not get into the ranks of professional wrestling or anything but you know they can still use this experience and uh, put it into other stuff or go into different other creative areas. I mean if you were to break down a professional wrestler and some of the skill sets they need to be successful you need business skills and being in terms of you're an independent contractor and um, breaking down the books, media skills in terms of being good on camera and being able to communicate, you know, as, as well as physical forms of communication and understanding body language as well. Which if you think about it in this day and age, that all of that stuff is invaluable in most workplaces. And, and I guess that the working age, like where, where you re- retire from wrestling is pretty like early, like, uh, you know, dancers when they kind of, you know, they hit a certain age and then they're not considered uh, good as a dancer. Or is it a case that you can get the legendary old guys back and uh, fill a stadium? Well, I think it depends on the person in one respect, right? Because spinal injuries, neck injuries, head injuries, they're all something that's been synonymous with wrestling over the last, what, several generations of when it's been majorly televised. But I guess now you've got all of this other stuff going on about concussion and things like that, where people understand more about it now. So I guess they manage their body better, right? But coming back to that point I made earlier, and I think it's an important one to mention with this because there could be people listening to this and it's like, well, why are you doing an episode on wrestling when it's fake? But the one thing you can't fake is gravity, right? And you can't fake that wear and tear on your body in their industry there is a term you know you've only got so many bumps in you which is the knocks that you take in the ring right and you're doing it day in day out I know that Mike talked about baseball in our interview but wrestling doesn't have an off season it's all year round right and if you're not working in an industry like that you're not getting paid so you know there's only so much wear and tear I think you can have on your body yeah and you know I'm, I'm not a huge wrestling fan but I, I, I don't ever say that it's fake and I think there's people that kind of do It'd be like um, if you put them in a ring with a big guy. Oh, yeah. Okay. You know, they would be out of the door in a second. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, personal anecdote to to Mike's wife after we, we talked about the bump stuff, I said to her, my viewpoint on things, right, is if you can work good enough to make it look as though you've got simulated combat, that if you really wanted to, you could probably mess somebody up. And she just smiled and like just nodded at me. And I was like, yep, I knew. <laughs> The, the kind of dramatics, it, it may be rehearsed or it may be pre-decided who wins the result and that may turn people into thinking that it's kind of fake. But the, the slams and all of that stuff, no, that that's, that's real. You know? As my wife and I were driving over to the indie show that Michael um, invited me to, it was funny because she was joking with me and saying, oh my God, I've married a redneck with a British accent. <laughs> and then when we went there, she watched it and she was just amazed by the choreography of it because everything has to be so tight, particularly when you're doing some of the flips and the slams and the things like that. But that's what I mean about dancing. It's like being able to hold someone and put their weight in a certain position and then be able to make sure you're safe and you're not doing your back in whilst you're doing that. You know, it's really requires trust and kind of deep thought about uh 
what you're doing with your body because it is very easy to wreck yourself. So in terms of the notes for this episode, because I think it is worth to mention, there's actually a documentary that won a prize at San Diego Comic-Con in 2017 on Michael and his journey. And it's called The Wrestler, a QT Marshall story. I'd recommend people going to Big pictures.com and check that one out because it's it's actually a really interesting documentary that people might find worthwhile i also mentioned barry blaustein's beyond the map which is a famous one from the late 90s that most people know barry blaustein big in hollywood uh seems as though for that actually reading through the roland bath stuff he actually kind of took that as inspiration a little bit if you want some of the behind the scenes side of things particularly from the attitude era that's a really good one to go to as well. And then other things I put in there, I put in some of the stuff that Mike has been doing with All Elite Wrestling, but I don't really think this episode was really about All Elite Wrestling from the point of view of, oh, Michael's involved with it. It's more the fact that at the moment, that company is clearly a reaction to a bigger shift, I think, that's going on in the media and connecting with people. And then the other thing I would say to look out for on the list as well is some of the the articles and the books that I put on there, as, as well as you know, references to the history of things, because the more I looked into this, I, I personally found it very interesting. So I'm assuming maybe other people listening might as well. Yeah, no, that sounds great. And um, I'm looking forward to the next episode. Uh, do we have any kind of preview? Well, at the moment, there's several that we could be, be doing, but I haven't decided yet on, you know, which ones we should. I might be going to an NWA show in Atlanta. So, you know, that's owned by Billy Corgan because there also, there also seems to be a, a link to the music industry in the sense that Rick Rubin did Smoky Mountain Wrestling and Billy now owns the NWA. So maybe it could be Billy Corgan, but I, I don't know yet. But we've definitely got a few in the can that uh, we can have coming out. But I'm, I'm not pinning it down this episode. I'm going to keep it fresh. So we have a little surprise next time. Okay, well, maybe we could do a poll on social media or something. Sounds good. Awesome. Well, thanks for listening, guys. And until next time, see you soon. Ciao.